Robinson welcoming you to A History of England. We've reached a milestone, chapter 100, a century of episodes, a ton, which is a good moment for a recap of where we've got to. When we started back in the 16th century, England was still a small country of northwest Europe. It had absorbed Wales centuries before, and Ireland was a possession, but it kept fighting wars with a Scotland that was still firmly independent. Internationally, England was a noisy irritant, challenging the dominance of other, far greater powers. And who were those powers? When we first met it, the Habsburg family controlled a huge empire embracing Austria and Spain and many other European holdings, as well as extensive overseas territories. Austria and Spain soon separated under different branches of the Habsburgs, but even so, Spain, with its holdings in the Americas and others in Africa and Asia, remained a global superpower on its own. In the race to rival those imperial powers, however, England was still a long way behind another continental nation, France. This was also the time of convulsions in Christendom, Catholics and Protestants were both committed to the New Testament message of 1 Corinthians 13.13. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. In pursuit of that love, each side waged wars and inflicted massacres on the other, enthusiastically murdering its opponents, usually with a fair bit of torture thrown in, often by fire. The Protestants, having got a taste for splitting away from one church, also then split amongst themselves and revealed themselves to be just as keen on massacres and fire to teach lessons in charity to each other. England hesitated for a while on the edge of these great separations. Henry VIII broke with Rome, but without abandoning Catholic principles or liturgy. He just wanted his church to be Anglican, in other words, English, and felt things would be far better if he ran it rather than some foreign pope. He didn't like Protestants and wasn't subtle in the way he showed it. An early pioneer of methods that Vladimir Putin has used more extensively, he even arranged for the execution abroad of the Protestant theologian and translator of the Bible, William Tyndale. Under his successors, England wobbled a while, but by late in the century, it was firmly on the Protestant side of the fence. Not as Protestant as Scotland, but certainly Protestant enough to put that country's Catholic Queen, Mary, to death. Mary's son James, however, eventually added the English crown to the Scottish one he'd inherited from his mother. He launched the Stuart dynasty in England pretty much at the start of the next century, the 17th, and it wound its lamentable way nearly to that century's end. Religious differences were one of the great controversies of Stuart times. Bound up with the religious controversies, the relationship between king and parliament was the other defining row of the Stuart period. The great champions of parliamentary rights were often associated with the more fundamentalist or dissenting trends in Protestantism, which found the Anglican Church, much preferred by the king, a great deal too Catholic for their taste. Things came to a head, literally in Charles I's case, since his was removed by the Axeman, when, in the course of three civil wars, parliamentary leaders organised the king's execution. That's nearly a century and a half before the French came up with that idea. 
It led to the brief and unique period during which England was a republic. That ended when Oliver Cromwell died and no one emerged to keep his regime going. Charles II, son of the executed king, was invited back. He strengthened monarchical rule with the Anglican Church enforcing a degree of religious orthodoxy. Even so, it was becoming increasingly difficult for a king to rule without parliament, especially if he wanted to raise taxes. That was increasingly the prerogative not just of parliament, but more specifically of the House of Commons, in which a distinct middle-class voice began to be heard alongside the nobles who still exercised their centuries-old authority. Meanwhile, things were changing on the continent, too. Spain and Austria were finding their position increasingly challenged by France. But Holland, only recently a possession of Spain's, was also beginning to raise its voice. It built itself an overseas empire and thriving maritime commerce, together with powerful financial institutions, including banks and a well-run stock market. England copied some of these Dutch developments and naturally fought several wars against Holland as a new rival on the global stage. Then Charles II died, and his openly Catholic brother James II mounted the throne. Leaders of both main parties in Parliament, Tories and Whigs, decided a Catholic king was more than they could stand. Together they invited a Protestant king and queen, the Dutch William of Orange and his wife Mary, the Protestant daughter of the very James II who was being pushed aside, to take over instead. This was the Glorious Revolution. It rather undermined the doctrine of the divine right of kings. After all, William and Mary had the throne by invitation of Parliament. That put some limits on the still considerable power of the monarch and enhanced the role of Parliament as a partner in politics. James II did attempt to take the throne back leading to bitter fighting in Ireland. Already subjected to terrible suffering under Cromwell, Irish Catholics found themselves victims of more oppression after the fighting. That takes us neatly into the 18th century. The Dutch had rather lost momentum as they decided they needed to spend a bit less on their foreign expansion and military efforts to back it up. As for England, after a century sharing the same king as Scotland, it decided to move towards a union of both countries. With a good measure of bribery and some oppression, England persuaded Scotland into a new nation, Great Britain, which also included Wales, the bit that tends to be forgotten about. The century saw six wars fought against France. Britain took part in five of them, sitting out only one when the man generally credited as being the country's first true Prime Minister, Robert Walpole, decided that it would be better for business if the country didn't get involved. And, indeed, Britain's wealth was beginning to grow spectacularly, with at its core financial sector modelled on what the Dutch had built before they rather dropped out of the running. That financial muscle helped Britain win most of the wars that it did join. It had success at sea, but less on land. Though it had a few exceptional generals, such as John Churchill, later Duke of Marlborough, who proved highly effective, if a bit profligate with his men's lives, it tended to do best by financing other countries' armies to do the fighting for it. There was a bit of a kaleidoscope of changing alliances in these wars. 
Austria was at first an ally, then an enemy, especially after Britain linked up with the new upstart power, Prussia. One constant, however, was that Britain was always fighting France. Austria came out of the wars much diminished, but Spain did even worse, rapidly losing its status as a major player. This all culminated in the Seven Years' War, when Britain made major gains against France and its local allies in India and in North America, above all in Canada. Britain didn't act directly in its own name in India, but through a private corporation, the East India Company, which did a spectacular job of looting its possessions there and preventing them developing an industrial base of their own, capable of competing with the British. But at the height of its success, Britain took its eye off the ball. The Prime Minister, William Pitt the Elder, had financed Britain's war effort through debt, and every now and then British leaders get terrified of debt. He was dismissed and the King, George III, turned to several mediocrities who served him to form a series of governments dedicated to cutting costs and repaying debt. They applied the axe, among other places, to an area where Britain had been most successful, the Navy. What they failed to see was what was happening to the British economy. The Industrial Revolution was getting well underway. If that started in Britain, it wasn't because the country was particularly inventive, as some suggest, but because, on the one hand, it had plentiful and easily accessible energy from coal, and, on the other, because its approach to business, to taxation and trade tariffs, to financial institutions, including the banks and the stock market, had created conditions for scientific discoveries and technological innovations, wherever they came from, to find ready implementation in business. The previously unimaginable economic growth ahead for Britain, coupled with its excellent creditworthiness, meant it had little to fear from debt. What made things worse was that these governments also set out to push the most populous and thriving British colonies in North America to contribute to the imperial cause through taxation. Imposed by a parliament in which they weren't represented, the colonists reacted to these taxes with anger, which soon turned into an unstoppable momentum for independence. When war broke out, Britain found that the expenditure cuts had left it incapable of overcoming the combined force of the French, the Spanish and the Dutch, who rallied to the American colonists. French and Spanish fleets sailed with impunity up and down the English Channel. Following defeat on land by combined French and American forces in Virginia, the latest of this series of sorry governments, Lord North's, finally fell. Now came another unpleasant moment for the king. The incoming administration laid down conditions for taking office. It told him that he must stop resisting American independence. No one had used that kind of language to a king of England since the glorious revolution nearly a century earlier. He caved, but then he went looking for a way to hit back. He eventually found a new favourite to lead a government for him but that led to another shock. His preferred candidate, William Pitt the Younger, wouldn't simply do as he was told and form a government. Instead, he decided only to take office once he was sure he could build himself a majority in the House of Commons. That was another vital change in British politics. 
the backing of the king remained hugely advantageous. Indeed, Pitt used the king's power of patronage to help him build the majority he needed. But without a Commons majority, no amount of royal support could any longer guarantee the survival of a government. When he became Prime Minister, Pitt decided that his key responsibility was the economy. He was good at mathematics and used tax policies intelligently, to the point where he could begin to reduce national debt, as his predecessors had wished, but still spend money on vital areas which they had subjected to cuts. His plans, which might have made him a great peacetime Prime Minister, were scuppered by the outbreak of the final war in the series with France. At least his good husbandry of the economy meant that Britain went into it with a navy in far better shape than in the War of American Independence and with strong finances, allowing it to fund allies to fight France. He also changed the nation he led. Ireland, like Scotland nearly a century earlier, also saw its parliament absorbed into Westminster. Pitts became the first Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. He died long before the war was over, but he'd set the course that would lead to victory. The Battle of Trafalgar ended any hope of further Spanish dominance at sea, as well as reducing French naval rivalry to near insignificance. And though the war on land was won more by huge Russian might and the brilliance of Prussian generalship, Britain shared in the victory, making it a major world power. So we've come a long way from the point where this podcast series started. England's no longer an outpost of Europe, snapping at the heels of more powerful nations. England, within the United Kingdom, had seen those powers off and become a new superpower itself. Economically stronger than any other nation, with a record of military success behind it, it was on the edge of its greatest global authority. As we saw last week, it had also dumped some important baggage from its past. First, dissenting Protestants were granted full rights. Then, and more shockingly, so were Catholics. As Britain emerged into the most powerful stage of its history, some of the old prejudices that had marked England for two centuries were being left behind. Next time, we're going to start talking about where things went next. Thanks for listening.